Well, this is a real treat to be here with all of you. You know, we get to see Greg. I get to see Greg regularly at our elder meetings, and so the elder team gets updates on how ChangePoint Northeast is doing. And, you know, an update from Greg is never a downer. <laughs> I don't think he could deliver a downer. He'd somehow find a way to make bad news still encouraging. But he hasn't had any bad news. Since the day this place got going, it has been nothing but a testimony to God's power and uh, we're taking kingdom ground here at Change Point Northeast. So I don't get to come over that often. So I'm going to get to go back to the elder team next time and tell Greg, hey, let me give the Change Point Northeast update this week. So it's a real treat to be here. You know, in some ways, it's really, uh, I was struck as I was sitting here thinking about how kind of interesting it is today to have me here, which has been planned for quite a while, uh, celebrating the fact that God births new, fresh church congregations and takes new territory that way. The reason it's kind of special today is that over on the Raspberry campus, uh, we as ChangePoint, and you're part of it too, although you may not be that aware of it, we're planting a, we're part of planting another church here in Anchorage this week. Uh, my brother Mike and uh, fellow elder Chris Kefalos are being officially commissioned at the Raspberry campus today. And they're planning a church here in town called Clearwater Church. And it's actually going to be like you guys, set up and tear down in a school over at Wendler Junior High School. And so for the second time in not even two full years, I don't think, Greg, uh, we at ChangePoint have gotten, are getting to be a part of planting fresh works in our city. And we're in a sermon series over at the Raspberry Campus called uh, Frequently Avoided Questions. And so today, it's the kind of, it's the Mariner Brothers show. I'm here teaching, and Mike is teaching at Raspberry on the Frequently Avoided Question, why in the world does Anchorage need yet another new evangelical church? Now, you guys know, I think in your DNA, why it's essential for expanding the kingdom of God that new churches are birthed. But Mike spent a lot of time uh, researching this question, and he's going to be teaching over there on this. I think all of you, even though you get it in your DNA, would be encouraged as somebody who's part of a new church plant to find some time this next week or two, listen to it online. I think you would come in in the following weeks even more fired up about the role that God has for you here at Change Point Northeast. So kind of a shameless plug for you to listen to my brother preach, but <laughs> trust me, it will be worth it. I've read his, I've read his uh, message. I'm going over to the 6 o'clock, so some of you might not have plans this, this evening. You can join me. Well, we, you here at Northeast Campus are kicking off this fresh uh, sermon series, What Every Christ Follower Needs to Know. And I'm planning to listen to as many of these as I can. They're going to be dynamite. And today we're going to start with kind of the most foundational thing you need to know. You need to know that this can be trusted. Because every one of the following messages is going to tell you something out of this book, right? And, and you're going to listen and nod, but the degree to which what you hear in the following weeks is, has power in your life, that's going to be dictated by the degree to which you have confidence that the source for those truths is truly trustworthy. So today I'm going to dump a ton of information on you that you won't remember all of it, but I, I, my prayer is you come out of here today going, my goodness, I can trust the things that come from God's word. This issue of, of confidence of scripture is, is critical. So this is a special Bible uh, to me personally. It's kind of emotional. I find myself not wanting to beat it up too much anymore because I've had it since I was heading off to college in the fall of 1985, leaving here from Anchorage, heading out east. 
And my parents gave me the Bible. It's got my name, including my middle name, which I would not have chosen to inscribe on my Bible, but there it is. It's Lamont, by the way, for those of you who are wondering. Uh, so they gave me this Bible, and I'm heading off to, to Harvard University. Now, up to the, that point, I'd spent 11 of my 12 years in school right here in Anchorage in Christian education. And in addition to being in Christian school, we were in church if the doors were open. I'd been in Sunday school. I'd been at Christian summer camps. I mean, I really went off to godless Harvard, fired up with a sense of confidence that I knew my scripture and I'd be ready for any uh, skeptics and, and what they would, would bring. I knew most students there at this Ivy League university would be skeptical or hostile to my faith, faith but I, had, I was ready to answer their questions. But here's what I wasn't prepared for. I wasn't prepared for my fellow students, by and large, to completely dismiss the source for the answers that I gave them. That I, I was ready for them to be hostile to my answers. I wasn't ready to have my source for those answers so completely dismissed. You know, when I'd point out what the Bible said about something, their attitude was kind of, well, so what? You know, so what the Bible says that? You know, here's what Nietzsche says, or here's what Kant says, or here's what Ayn Rand says. I remember an argument about this very thing with a friend called Rob Knapp, and I was saying to Rob, I can't believe that you're granting a couple of, uh, a couple of German philosophers in a 20th century uh, Russian exile more credibility than the historic Jewish Christian scriptures. And Rob basically said back, I can't believe you're choosing to, to put your trust in some ancient fables written by desert-dwelling, robe-wearing donkey riders rather than the best minds that civilization has produced. Completely different frames of reference as it comes to whether this is authoritative. Family, listen to me. It is God's will that you would have complete confidence in the trustworthiness of his word. It's his will that you would have confidence in your faith. You know, interesting in Hebrews, I found this, uh, this verse very interesting. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. I think you can put it on the screen here. We read this. Writer of Hebrews says, We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. We have come to share fully in Christ if we, held, if we hold till the end the confidence we had at first. Two things I see here. First thing I see is that firm spiritual confidence is absolutely essential if we're to share in Christ and to glorify God by enjoying the abundant life that Christ came to give us. You see, for Christ followers, firm spiritual confidence is essential. It's not optional. And the fact that it's essential, and it says so right here in Scripture, is kind of sobering to me. It, it requires me to ask the question, how confident am I really spiritually? Second thing I see here is that God's telling us we can lose our confidence in him. You see that there? The confidence we had at first can be lost over time. And that's sobering forces me to ask the question, have I lost some of the confidence that I once had in God? How do, how do you think that happens? How, how do we lose confidence in God? 
I don't think there's a simple answer to that question, but I believe a big part of how we lose confidence in God is found in the difference between what I'd call heart confidence, spiritual heart confidence, and spiritual head confidence. Jesus tells us that the greatest commandment from God is for us to love him with all our heart and with all our mind, right? So Jesus himself in the greatest commandment kind of distinguishes the difference between heart and, and mind. There's a difference between loving God with our hearts and loving God with our minds. You know, God builds heart confidence different than he builds head confidence spiritually. When we first come to Christ, we don't have a whole lot of head confidence. It's all kind of heart we know that God's God. We know that we're not. We're ready to trust him with everything. Pure heart confidence. We, because we really don't know dip about the Bible most of the time when we come to know Christ, right? It's all, it's all heart confidence. Because, see, spiritual heart confidence comes through experiences. It's those times when God touches our lives and we know experientially that God is who he says he is, that his word is true, that we can trust him. Experiences produce heart, spiritual heart confidence. But, you know, spiritual confidence overall can't be sustained, can't be sustained by spiritual experiences alone. Satan can counterfeit them. He can put us in a season where he robs them from us to some degree. Spiritual confidence overall cannot be sustained by spiritual experiences alone. Paul tells us in Romans 12, too, that spiritual transformation requires a renewing of our mind. Ephesians 4.14, Paul warns us that relying on spiritual experiences alone will leave us in a state of, kind of he describes spiritual childhood, where we'll be tossed and forth, he says, by every, every wind of doctrinal debate, our confidence in God eroding away beneath our feet. And the truth is that some of you in a crowd this large, some of you are kind of living that today. You've not embraced the spiritual discipline of growing in the knowledge of God's truth, and you're trying to sustain your confidence in the Lord through spiritual experiences predominantly. You're trying to live spiritually from one experience to the next. Of course, others of you in a crowd this size are going to have fallen off the other side of the, of the cart here. Uh, you're going to be trying to sustain your overall spiritual confidence in God completely through the head and not recognizing that that will ultimately as well leave you bereft of one half of what you're meant to stand on. Despite your solid biblical knowledge, your confidence too will erode if you simply seek to encounter God through deeper and deeper knowledge of what his word says. We need both heart confidence and head confidence. And my goal today is to boost your confidence from both your heart and your head in the trustworthiness of God's word. You know, millions of words have been written, uh, countless books have been written on the ish question of can you trust scripture? And I'm certainly not going to cover all the arguments today. I want to take a slightly different tact than you often see in what you read when you read books about the Bible and can it be trusted. I want to talk about the question, this question, is there anything about Scripture that, that feels supernatural as we look at it? Doesn't it seem to make sense that if this is God's Word, that, that as we encounter it, we would feel and touch and see things that just don't seem to make sense naturally? I mean, God wouldn't have to do that. He wouldn't have to have His Word have some kind of almost 
spooky, supernatural aspects, but doesn't it seem to make sense that if this is God's word, as we, as we look at it in the big picture, we would see things that just can't be explained naturally. I think not only does it make sense, I think God has done that uh, abundantly. And I want to point out five aspects of Scripture that I think are supernatural. It seems to me that as we look at Scripture, there ought to be kind of a woe factor as we look at it. And as I go through these five, maybe not every one of them will create a woe factor, but some of them will. And overall, I think jaws are going to drop today if this is some of the first time you've heard this. Five supernatural aspects of the Bible. First one I want to highlight is its supernatural evidence. You know, interestingly, not that long ago, we Christians had no way of proving that what we read in our Bibles was actually what was written when they were first penned. We had no way of proving it. And that's because the oldest manuscripts weren't all that old, relatively speaking. The oldest manuscripts up until this last century were about dated to about 1200 A.D. Those are the oldest manuscripts we had. Well, there's a pretty big gap in time between when the Bible was initially being penned, these books, and 1200 A.D. I mean, the New Testament, you're looking at about 1200 years. And of course, for the Jewish scriptures, you'd add sometimes a couple thousand more years to that number. Now, this was to be expected. This was not any surprise because manuscripts hadn't, you know, they kind of have a shelf life, right? They're written on parchment. Stuff doesn't last for forever. And every ancient writer was in the same boat, whether it was Caesar or uh, Plutarch or Plato. These, uh, these writers all had manuscripts that were you know, thousands of years, copies written thousands of years later. Now, I've got a chart here that shows you this gap. Notice the, all of these famous authors, some of whom you maybe never even heard of, like uh, Tacitus and Pliny. Oldest copy we have uh, somewhere between 850 and 1100 A.D. with a gap of between 750 and almost 1400 years. But look at the New Testament. About, t- about 75, 80 years ago, something unexplainable started to happen to archaeologists. They started discovering an unprecedented number of ancient manuscripts that were far, far, far older than anything that had ever been discovered. And they got to be, like, every time they'd <laughs> dig and put a shovel in the dirt and in the Middle East, they'd find another canister with an ancient manuscript. And, and here's what was so amazing. It was the fact, two things. They were, they were so much older than anything else we discovered, and they were all biblical manuscripts. All of them. So today, you know, 100 years after this starts happening, we now have New Testament manuscripts that are, in, in the case of John, could well have, the manuscript could well have been penned while John was still alive. And for every other famous ancient writer, we still are left with the same 1,200-year or so gap that we had a century ago. They haven't found any of Caesar's. Now think about this for a minute. This is Caesar, the... Uh, the head of the Roman Empire writes his histories. He had them copied. He had them sent to every town and outpost throughout the Roman. There would have been, Caesar's histories would have been copied and sent everywhere. Does it seem natural that the archaeologists haven't found a single one in the last century older than what we had before that when they have found not one, not two, but let's now get to the issue of number of manuscripts. We found over 20 1,000 biblical manuscripts. Look at the numbers here. Caesar, 10. That's all we have. 
uh, Plato, seven. Most of them are in single digits, many of them. Only Demosthenes gets to a couple hundred. The New Testament, we now have over 24,000 ancient manuscripts. Try to explain that one naturally, especially when for quite a while people were trying to burn all the uh, manuscripts, Christian manuscripts they could find. So whether you're talking the age of the manuscripts or the number of the manuscripts, the evidence that we have for our scriptures not only makes us confident that, uh, that what we're reading is actually what was written, and that's what most of the books talk about. Most of the books say, hey, we, we now can be confident that this really is what Paul wrote. This really is what uh, was written um, back when Ezra was writing. So we can have confidence what we're reading is accurate, but the supernatural thing about that is that there's nothing else like Scripture when it comes to manuscript evidence, not even remotely close. Your, draw, your jaw should drop as you look at the manuscript evidence for Scripture against every other ancient writing. I don't see a way to explain 24,000 Scripture manuscripts and a handful of Caesar and Plato and Demosthenes. It's supernatural. That's the evidence. Let's go on to the second aspect, supernatural consistency. Think about it. The Bible was composed over a span of 1,500 years. I mean, how old is the United States, right? We're 200 and something. And it seems like the founding fathers lived a long time ago. You can, you know, they wrote kind of weird. You read their stuff, and it's like kind of strange. The Bible was written over 1,500-year time span by more than 40 different authors from completely different walks of life, three different, three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. All sorts of literary styles from poetry to history to letters, parables, prophecy. And, and it's not just written about normal stuff. We're talking about writings that deal with the most controversial topics that we have as human beings, right? Marriage, obedience to the authority, nature of God. Given all those facts, the Bible would have to be full of conflicts and inconsistencies if it were at all natural. I mean, if you ask my wife Ruth and me to each write a five-page essay on kind of what makes for successful parenting, you'd find inconsistencies even between us. And we speak the same language. But here's the truth. When we open the pages of Scripture, do we find inconsistencies? Do we find disagreements about the nature of God, about kind of what his plan for life is? No. 1,500 years, 40 authors, you know, all those different books, different styles, they, they are completely consistent. Now, for quite a while, the consistency was actually used by critics of, of Scripture to prove that it was invented because it's so self-obviously true that there is no way that it could be internally consistent. During the so-called Age of Enlightenment, when it became popular for kind of the, for, uh, the intelligentsia to, to critique Christianity, that was one of their biggest arguments. They said, you know, look how consistent it is. Couldn't be the case. Our oldest manuscripts are only from 1200 AD. The monks cooked the books, Right. What you read is essentially invented by monks in monasteries over 1,200 years to make it all make sense because it can't be anything else. Well, the manuscript evidence we just talked about demolishes that argument. We know this is what actually was written. And so you're left with a jaw-dropping 
reality that somehow, supernaturally, God inspired the different authors over all those time periods and those different languages and those different forms of communication to speak not their words, but his words. It, it is supernaturally consistent. There is no other explanation. Third supernatural aspect of the Bible, I want to mention it's found in fulfilled prophecy. And by prophecy, I mean the foretelling of, of events that had not yet occurred at the time the text was written. You know, we often forget how much of the Bible was prophecy when it was written. In part, that's because we spend most of our time in the New Testament, which doesn't have a lot of prophecy other than the book of Revelation. The Old Testament, which we call the, the historic uh, Jewish scriptures, has much more prophecy in it. In fact, uh, scholars say perhaps 25% of the Bible was prophecy at the time it was written. So counting the prophecies is a bit challenging because it depends on what you call a prophecy. But the point is there are lots of them, hundreds and if not thousands of prophetic statements. And many of those prophetic statements that we find in Scripture concerned the long-foretold Jewish Messiah. Lots and lots of messianic promises. Here's the point. Jesus Christ fulfilled everyone. Everyone. Now, here's a chart that for those of you in the back will be hard to read. <laughs> you can uh, call the church office. They can email it to you this week if you're interested in, in going through them. And this is not an exhaustive list. This is some of the messianic prophecies, the books in which those pro the references for where they're made, and then the references for where Christ directly fulfills those prophecies. You know, the guys who are numbers geeks, they love to write computer programs calculating what's the odds that any random human being could possibly have lived a life that just happened to fulfill these prophecies, and they come up with a number so long it would take a lot of pages to print off the zeros. It's impossible. The only way Jesus Christ could have lived a life to fulfill all those prophecies is if God supernaturally spoke his words to the author, the author wrote them down, and God then brought it to pass. Supernatural, the messianic prophecies. One other I'll mention, and that's the prophecies concerning the people of Israel. It's really, you know, in all of Scripture, you'll see all these prophecies. To me, the one that's the most audacious, the craziest, is the prophecies about the people of Israel. Because think about it. When this prophecy is made, there's, there's no people of Israel. There's one guy. His name's Abram. He's just hanging out in the desert. And God shows up and says, Abram, I'm going to make you into an enormous nation. Now, that's a pretty big prophecy. Okay, Let's, you know, that's a big one, God. Let's see how that one plays out for you. But God doesn't stop with that big prophecy. He says, I'm going to make you into a, a great nation through whom all the world will be blessed. By the way, I'm going to give you and the nation a special promised land that I'm going to let you have for all time. I mean, we're into crazy talk here. Seriously. Truly crazy talk. It, it can't happen. God could take one person and make him a great nation. You know, and, and through that nation, the world would be blessed. But you start getting into give you a land, you'll preserve the land for all time. That, that doesn't happen. It can't happen. No people live for thousands of years with their culture intact, possessing the same. Let me think about the fact that Israel was never an empire, 
right? They're a pretty small group of people in a little tiny plot of land. Their high point was under Kings David and Solomon, and it wasn't all that big of a deal. They were next to much bigger empires, Assyrians, Babylonians, who pretty much came in and kicked their tail whenever they felt like it, and God let them. The Assyrians had a a massive culture, very dominant. The Babylonians, a huge culture, language, religion, uh, ways of doing things. Does anyone speak Assyrian? They haven't spoken Assyrian for 2,000 years. Oh, no, sorry, 3,000 years. Think about the Roman Empire, arguably the greatest culture the world has ever produced. Dominant. We still, in Western civilization, are heavily influenced by their laws and other things. But no one speaks Latin. No one's worshiping Jupiter or Venus. It's a dead language. It's a dead culture and has been for well over a thousand years. Because no people group survives for thousands of years with culture intact, language intact, except one. This little ragtag group of people that have been persecuted, and that's another story of supernatural. Why would the Jewish people of all people on earth be so persecuted? It makes no natural sense. There's no reason to beat up on them like that unless you read scripture, and then it all makes sense. When they started discovering these ancient manuscripts like the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they'd bring in a photocopy of the Dead Sea Scroll to a little first-grade class in Israel, the first-grade children could read that scroll as if it was in their textbooks. 2,000 years after that scroll was penned. I can't read Shakespearean English. I took a Shakespeare class. You're going to read the, you can't read the thing. They could read the Dead Sea Scrolls written 2,000 years ago. They're worshiping the same God. They're reading the same language. They're speaking the same language. Their culture's intact. And get this, 2,000 years after they were driven from their land that God had promised them, in our lifetimes, the nation of Israel has been reborn in their promised land. If that doesn't make your jaw drop, I really don't have anything more better than that. I mean, that is a, that is a big deal. It is, it is a ridiculous, crazy talk, 4,000-year-old prophecy that in our generations has, has seen fulfillment that ought to re- remove any doubt in any of our minds that Scripture can't be trusted. Supernatural prophetic evidence that this is not just some book. This is God's word. 4,000 years ago, he knew what would happen in the, 19, in, the, in the 1960s or whenever it was that Israel was reborn. That's right, 40. Thank you. I mean, he's supposed to be a historian too. <laughs> Got that one wrong. I'm kind of a big picture sort of guy. All right, I'm going to have to blow past some other notes. Let's get to, uh, I think this is the fourth one, right? Supernaturally accurate. You know, we humans have poor memories, obviously. Uh, We make mistakes. We're prone to fudging history to make ourselves look good. Anybody else do that? I know I do that all the time. Absent supernatural involvement, the the Scripture would would exhibit all of those characteristics, especially the tendency to want to whitewash history. But instead of that, what do we find? Incredible tales of of reality, historical reality. Uh, Instead of stories that make the writers look good, the Bible's full of tales that make the writers look human. All right? You don't write stories to make yourself look human. You you write stories to make yourself look good. You know, year after year, archaeologists make new discoveries 
that validate previously unknown and uncertain aspects of biblical history. And the pace of these discoveries has really astonished scholars. If you go back to the 1960s and kind of read what archaeologists believed about the scriptural narratives, the history stories of David and Jonathan and all of them, they didn't believe any of them. And the reason they didn't believe him is there was no hard evidence. They hadn't found, they hadn't even found the city of Jericho. So the story of the walls falling, they didn't buy that at all. There's no city of Jericho. There was no proof that King David ever lived, no proof that Joshua ever lived. So in 1960s, secular scholars didn't buy any of the narratives. They figured they were all complete fabrications. How 50 years can change things. Now you won't find any secular scholars who disbelieve the scripture. They simply put them into two camps. Those that we've now found hard proof of, like King David, like Jericho, like Joshua, uh, and those that we haven't yet. And the reason that they've moved so far is because, one, so many archaeological discoveries have been made that validate the scriptural histories. And, but bigger than that, no discovery has ever been found that disproves a single one of the historical uh, narratives in Scripture. Not one. So much so that secular, secular uh, archaeologists are now saying, you know what? The scriptural narratives that we see here seem to be pretty good, accurate representations of what really happened. And if we don't yet have evidence, we'll probably find it one of these days. You know, even in science, one of the areas that uh, long believed where the Bible was untrustworthy, right? New discoveries are validating the biblical account. Scientists used to believe the universe had always existed. Carl Sagan, you, those of you who are old enough to remember his show, Cosmos, he'd always start, talk about billions and billions of years as if the universe had always existed because scientists thought it had. Well, now scientists have concluded, nope, it actually had a beginning. It's called, they call it the Big Bang when, when something sprang out of nothing. And the astrophysicists now tell us that their mathematical equations indicate that the physical laws of the universe, like gravity and such, nuclear forces that keep the atoms from flying apart, those laws, their math tells them, had to be established prior to the Big Bang. They don't really get that, but that's what the math says. It isn't hard to see how the Big Bang and the astrophysicist calculations line up with the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. The Bible is supernaturally accurate in what it says. Fifth and final one I'll point out, supernatural impact. You know, just about everyone who makes a case for why the Bible's true mentions the unparalleled impact that it's had on the world. Because however you want to measure it, the Bible comes up tops. Far and away the most popular book in history. They estimate, no one knows for sure, they estimate 5 billion, with a B, copies of the Bible sold. I was kind of curious, though, to see what the number two bestseller in history was. Anybody happen to know? I didn't know it, but somebody at one of the other services did. Anybody happen to know what the second most printed book in history is? No, that was one of the ones I thought, too. Pilgrim's Progress is not. It's Chairman Mao's Little Red Book. Because when you have the Chinese Communist Party uh, printing free printing presses, they can print a lot of them. But they've only pr produced about 800 million. Far cry of 5 billion. And Mao's only been translated into a couple different languages, uh, a few of the major ones. But the Bible, 2,200 languages. It's now possible for over 90% of the world's population to read the Bible 
in, in the, his or her own native language. And here's the really breathtaking thing. Because computers are speeding up translations so much so, they, the Bible translators keep reducing their estimates of how long it'll take to have it translated into every language on earth. They now say that they think it's only a decade or 15 years away before the Bible will be the first book in human history. And there won't be any book even remotely close that will now be translated into every language on the planet. So you read these statistics about how many Bibles and how many languages a lot when you read things about the trustworthiness of Scripture. But for me as a historian, I don't find those numerical statistics nearly as big a miracle as I do the political freedoms that the Bible and its message has produced on our planet. Because if there's anything that history teaches us, it's that the concept of individual freedoms and individual human rights, that concept is not a natural concept. What's natural is for those few with power to brutally exploit the many without power. That's what's natural if you look at history. According to the Freedom House, that's the flagship nonprofit tracking global political freedom. Freedom House says that 60% of the world's population still lives in societies that are not fully free, as we would understand it here in America. 60% still live in societies that are not fully free. As a historian, I don't find that surprising at all. The stunner for us historians is that 40% of the people on the globe are fully free politically. 40%. How in the world did that happen? Because you rewind history not very long, and that was not the case. When we birthed this nation, it was a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of the world that, that was free as we now understand it. Now, a couple hundred years later, billions are free, 40%, and the momentum is growing. How did that happen so quickly in human history? I'm telling you, it is all a direct result of this book. Because the founding fathers of America did not invent the idea of political freedom and individual human dignity and rights out of the air. What does our our Declaration of Independence say right at the beginning? Right? They are endowed, we are endowed by our creator with dignity and worth, which ought to logically lead to a political system that exalts the human individual to a place of freedom. No other source in all of human history, in all those cultures, has ever said anything like that. No other book has ever had anything like the impact of the Bible on human civilization. It is not an exaggeration to say that the Bible is the only force that has enabled human beings to overcome their base nature and organize societies that are not built on the exploitation of the many by the few. It's the only source that's ever allowed us to do that because it's supernatural. It comes from out of this world. And it not only tells us something that we would never come up with on our own, it carries with it power. Power to actually change the way human beings live, the way they organize. There's power to change the world. This is why Satan so hates this book. The world is meant to be his domain, and little by little, person by person, year by year, God's power is changing it from the inside out, and it's accelerating dramatically. The last couple hundred years, Satan is on his heels. 
A couple hundred years ago, most of humanity was still trapped in the historic domination of the many by the few, abuse. I mean, think about the caste system in India. The, I mean, go around the world. It, it just horrible, and it always been that way. 200 years later, blink of the eye, 40% of the world is free, and the rest are moving that direction, believe it or not. Satan must just be ticked. And Israel's back in its land. These are exciting times, people. This is not the time to let Satan use any doubts that he would create in our mind that Scripture is not trustworthy to keep us from stepping into the life God intends us to live. We need to set aside any doubt in Scripture and say, okay, I'm, I may not like much of this as it relates to what I want to do right now, but this is God's Word. It's worth just for a second asking the question, how do the other big religious source books stack up when uh, kind of against these same supernatural criteria we've talked about? The answer is not too well. Think of the Quran. The Quran struggles in the evidence category. There were several different versions of Muhammad's writings that were compiled after his death, and these versions differ from each other in important ways. The, the Muslim Islamic scholars are arguing about that a lot these days. Evidence category does not seem at all supernatural for the Quran. The Hindu scriptures fail on the consistency test. Massively inconsistent, the Hindu scriptures. Some parts argue for a monotheistic God. Others are polytheistic or pantheistic. It's kind of hard to be consistent when part of your scripture sets, uh, source texts say there's one God and parts say there's thousands. Not very consistent. Jehovah's Witnesses uh, struggle in this prophecy category. Ever since their founder, Charles Russell, staked his reputation on a prophecy that Christ would return in the year 1914. And that was followed by many subsequent prophecies about the end of the world, none of which, of course, of course have, failed, have come to pass. Book of Mormon struggles in the accuracy area. Book of Mormon's built on the histories of the lost tribes of Israel, for those of you who may have read it. Uh, and the histories give, just like this Bible is full of histories of the, Israel, the Book of Mormon is full of histories of the lost tribes coming over to uh, South America and building civilizations and cities. Unfortunately, unlike uh, the Christian scriptures, the Book of Mormon has no archaeological findings that support anything uh, that, that's in that book. Um, and as for impact, let's just say this. It is not good to be a minority or poor or a woman in most countries that do not share a Christian heritage. So the impact of the competing religious texts have not produced great outcomes for individual human beings in their respective cultures. Now, I'm not trying to denigrate here any other religious faith. That's not my goal. I just want you to understand how God-breathed our scriptures are. That's my point. When you open its pages, I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're reading the very words of God. Nothing less than that. I want you to realize that when God inspired the, the writer of Hebrews to say that the word of God is living and active and, and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut through to the heart of the matter in whatever issue you're dealing with in your life. God meant what he said. His word, family, it's alive.
It's, it's God's living word. And it has supernatural power to change your life. I was asking God as I was preparing this message. And so I always pray for my messages. And this time around, I kind of had the words uh, passion and power in my mind as I was praying. I'm praying God is going to use this message. I know I've dumped fire hosted with a bunch of information. I'm, I'm believing that God's going to use this message to ignite a fresh passion in each and every one of us to meet him in his living word, to meet him there. Because you need it more than you think. I promise you, you do. Some of you need comfort today. Life's hard right now. God has living words of comfort for you in his scripture. Some of you need direction. You're not sure which way to go on some big decisions. God has living words of direction for you. Trust in the Lord. Lean on him, not your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will what? Make your paths straight. Direct your paths. God's got living words of guidance for you. And some of us need correction. We're making choices outside of God's plan for life. Choices that carry consequences. God's word has loving, gentle, yet firm words of correction for you. That will defeat the plans of the evil one to derail you and put you back on the narrow path that leads to abundant life. And you know what? If you're like me, all of us need encouragement, don't we? Boy, the Bible's full of encouragement. You don't have to turn the pages very far to find living words of God that will inject encouragement deep into your heart. But you have to let him speak. You've got to experientially enter into a connection with God and his word that will build that heart confidence because you had a fresh experience with him. But you know what the great thing about being in his word is that way? Is it'll simultaneously be giving you a transforming of your mind and building head confidence. And as you encounter God in his word and he builds confidence in both our heart and our head, power. So fresh passion to meet him in his word will produce fresh power to live the life God has for you. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how powerful it is. Thank you for not... um, My Lord, I thank you that you don't ask us to just have faith that's void of real rebar in uh, in the foundation of that faith. That as we ask legitimate questions about, boy, is this really God's word? You have made it more than abundantly clear that this word is, this Bible we have is not some natural collection of human writings, but is truly from you. I thank you for that. That is a gift to me. Lord, I am praying for fresh passion for each and every one of us to meet you in your word, to trust what you say is true, to let you change us uh, by the power of your spirit. And Lord, would your power go forth in the lives of every one of us into our city and our state? We've got friends and family, neighbors who, who are just lost. They may not look it, but they don't have answers. They have never had the whoa factor of seeing you in action. Lord, would you use us to reach them? Would Change Point Northeast be a beacon of light and hope and power in our city and in our state? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.